0: check out guardianvets.com now.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I'm excited that you're here. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's podcast here in just a second. We're going to hit up our sponsors that help make the show possible. There's lots of companies that I believe in that I think help veterans across the board, whether it's find a job, hire talent, become more efficient in their practice, all those things. right? So these sponsors mean a ton to me. So I know a lot of people will fast forward or skip through them. But if and when you're looking for help and some of the solutions they offer, I would highly, highly encourage you to check them out. And so with that, no further ado, jump into the ads and we'll get right into the show. So thank you for listening and uh, enjoy. I get it, Isaiah. You talk about Bitcoin all the time. Well, as I go out and about, I continually hear the demand for, I need more Bitcoin education, or I don't really understand. I hear you talking about it. I know you're passionate about it. I know you have a lot of conviction, but I need more info. And that's where Bitcoin for VetMed really came from, was taking, hey, the 10,000, 100,000 hours of time that I've spent and distill it down into bite-sized courses. And walking you through of getting a foundational why a little bit of understanding the technical side of bitcoin and then how to grapple with the fear uncertainty and doubt and just the things that you hear throughout the media and giving you the ability to up your bitcoin knowledge to go from zero to hero and feel a lot more comfortable saying okay this is something that matters and i want to take some of the value that i create and save into bitcoin So head over to BitcoinForVetMed.com or click the link in
0: the show notes. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now.
1: Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with Offer First. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. If you want to learn more, listen to episode 170. Nine with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first, or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first. But I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote, your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay. So. Link in the show notes is going to take you to Offer First. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to Offer First directly. And Offer First is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. They're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets by vets. It works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. All right, I am rejoined by a guest. So, Dr. Lucas Pantaleone is a equine veterinarian and DVM. He has been a One Health industry advisor, prolific CE presenter and speaker. I've seen him all over the place, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the different content that he's talked about. And you joined me about a year ago now, which is wild to think how long it's been. For episode 164, talked about value-based care and beyond. So, if you're looking for a little bit more of a an intro or want to get to know a little bit more about Lucas, uh, you can certainly find it out there. But uh, so thankful to have you back and look forward to connecting today.
2: Yeah, it's cool to be back. I say thanks for the opportunity.
1: Yeah. And this time, solo episode, so we don't have to have you share the mic so we can jump in. I do like having multiple guests. I think the conversation can ebb and flow, but it is nice also to have someone that's really passionate about a topic come in and chat just specifically on that. And when we had connected, I'd reach back out to you because you had mentioned, hey, I probably have some other ideas of things I think would make really good content. And a couple of the ideas you floated, I had not done as many clinical type of discussions. And we're going to go there today. And I will preface everything with, I'm probably going to mispronounce things. I know that I'll make a fool of myself at times, but that's okay. I'm comfortable with that. But you talked at IVEX about antimicrobials and measuring outcomes and kind of looking at it from a lens, also a little bit from the human health side. And so I want to start there and let you kind of frame some of the conversation for today. And then I did pull some folks that listen to the podcast that I know and have some questions I want to throw your way and and get some feedback on it.
2: Yeah, that's great. And as you say, I've been speaking quite a bit about antimicrobial resistance because this is a very hot topic now. I'm sure your listeners are quite aware of it and not only in veterinary medicine, but also in human health and environment health. And you talk about a clinical topic and you'll see through, I think, through our conversation that it is a clinical topic, but also includes a lot about how to work together and how to tackle a very complex problem working together and across disciplines. But if you allow me, I wanted to First, kind of define what antimicrobial resistance is and probably put into perspective how complex this problem is, right? So we'll focus specifically on antibiotics mainly today, because when you talk about antimicrobial, that includes antifungals, includes antivirals, which also they have the same challenge of different pathogens developing resistance to antibiotics, antifungals and antivirals. But, you know, antibiotic resistance is sort of a progressive process right which bacteria in this case through three process evolutionary because they evolve to become resistance to an antibiotic, environmental factors, all the environmental pressures that are put towards these pathogens, and one of them is the use of antibiotics and social factors. You know, we people using the antibiotics, sometimes in a proper way, sometimes in an appropriate way, but the use of antibiotics in itself exposes these pathogens to these drugs, and over time, they can become resistant to a drug that once was effective in killing them. Okay, so we are dealing with a very important and very significant public health threat here because, as you probably know, antibiotics are essential for veterinarians and humans and agriculture, plant agriculture, to get rid of bacterial diseases. And really, this problem of antibiotic resistance will have monumental impact on the health, on the economy, and even social consequences if we don't do something to stop it. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to stop it, but to manage it. And so antibiotics, really these bacteria that become resistant to antibiotics, as many diseases do not respect borders, right? So whatever happens in one side of the world, it could be transferred through transport, trade, travel, tourism. You could travel freely across different areas of the world. So really what happens in one area of the world matters to the whole world as a whole. And it's been said that with disease transmission and antimicrobial resistance, a threat anywhere is a threat everywhere. And we've talked a little bit about the economic impact of this problem if we don't do something about it, right? And it's been a British economist a few years back had put a paper and had done a very interesting study that talks about that if we don't do something about these, antimicrobial resistance could kill by 2050 about 10 million people. And it could cost, and you probably be interested in the cost of these, about $100 trillion to the global GDP. This is a significant amount of money that it could cost to the global economy if we lose the ability to treat bacteria. And more going to what's happening today, about 5 million people around the world die because of an antimicrobial resistant infection. Okay. And that happens in high income countries and low and middle income countries. And each country has different challenges. So, in a sense, if we lose the ability to treat our patients, human or animal, with these very powerful drugs, some people are thinking that we might go back to the pre-antibiotic era, which is something that we don't want to do. So when you frame it like this, it seems like your head wants to explode, right? We've talked about this very complex problem, and it's defined as a super wicked problem. (laughs) Because I really like that phrase because, and that really implies that in order to solve this problem, you need to bring uh, people from different disciplines coming together and working together to try to tackle these super wicked problems. One of the issues with solving super wicked problems is that the people that are seeking the solution to this problem are normally part of the problem, if you follow me, right? Veterinarians, we are trying to do better with the use of antibiotics, but on the other hand, we need to use them. Sometimes we feel pressure to use them, and that happens in human medicine and veterinary medicine alike. Another framework that you could put these antimicrobial use that I thought is very interesting. I don't know if you heard about this concept of the tragedy of the commons. Absolutely. And this talks about individuals that have access to a public resource, which is a common. And in this case, you could argue that antibiotics are a public resource. Sometimes we act selfish without thinking about the future in our case and using too much of this resource could deplete it or make the resource unuseful if the bacteria really develops resistance to these drugs so it is a behavioral problem because a lot of the times we act selfishly thinking about how am i going to treat this particular patient without thinking what could be the consequences or thinking about could we use something else other than an antibiotic.
1: So to kind of wrap that whole idea, what's caused the problem is an overuse, both within veterinary medicine and broader human health, that will kind of decay the effectiveness of antibiotics over time, creating, let's call them super germs, right? Super wicked problems that can become stronger That's boil it down, you feel like, fairly? Yeah, that's correct. And I think,
2: like I say, we are all part of the problem. So this is not something, this is not an issue that we need to point fingers, right? We cannot say as veterinarians, or human health is the problem, or plant health is the problem, or animal agriculture is the problem. Now, this is a problem by which we need to come to the table and really work together in order to learn from each other and be able to implement strategies to better manage the use of antibiotics. Because really, any time we use an antibiotic, we are going to predispose to resistance. But we use antibiotics appropriately, will minimize the appearance of resistance, you would hope. Okay, overusing antibiotics, just prescribing antibiotics to everything that comes through the door is something that we should not do um, and there should be more emphasis to different things that we can do to minimize the appearance of disease, for example, infection prevention and control measures, right? Something very simple as washing your hands or cleaning and disinfection of the environment in a hospital, vaccination to prevent or decrease the amount of respiratory diseases. All those things are very important at the front end that will lead to a less need for antibiotics because, you know, there'll be less pathogens are there, less sick people, less sick animals that will require medical attention, potentially prescription of an antibiotic, rightly or wrongly. Okay.
1: So this is probably more predicated and focused on the human side, but my understanding is the idea of using hand sanitizer a lot, or even like antibacterial soap can actually be an issue as well, right? Because of creating the same effect. Is that fair to think about that that way? You're very right about that. And
2: overusing of some of these cleaning products, like you mentioned, some of these antibacterial soaps, it's been shown that you don't have to wash your hands with an antibacterial soap. If you wash it with a regular soap, it has the same effect, unless you're about to do surgery, right? A surgeon might need to do a extra layer of disinfection of his or her hands, in, because of the invasive procedures that are about to perform. But regular people having antibacterial salt in your in your house, it, it doesn't add anything, and could leave residues in the environment that could potentially lead those bacteria to become resistant. So when you think about this very complex problem, what we talk about in human health and in veterinary care is this concept of stewardship. We need to be really good stewards of this resource that we have that is really a limited resource. So when we think about stewardship is, as a profession, we need to work together to preserve these resource and preserve the effectiveness, and availability of these antibiotic drugs. And we need to really have oversight and use the drugs responsibly, right? Because we really need to safeguard animal, public, and environmental health from trying to minimize the appearance of antimicrobial resistance. And when you think about this concept of you mentioned value care. When you think about how antibiotic stewardship could be applied to that concept of value care it really is about optimizing the use of antibiotics to try to minimize adverse effects because sometimes we forget that antibiotics are drugs and like any drugs has adverse effects. So it's not sometimes we have tunnel vision and say, Okay, well, I'm going to treat this dog for these, but we forget that we can cause other problems by using antibiotics. And it is costly to use antibiotics, right? They are not cheap drugs. Some they are, but maybe they shouldn't. And also the fact that you could potentially have complications and you need to treat a patient for some complications for side effects could increase the cost. And really over time, we need to think about how we can do best for that patient and improve the health outcomes. When we need to use antibiotics and we have sufficient support to use that antibiotic, yeah, let's use it. And when we don't, could we wait a little bit and see what happens? Could we use some other alternatives to an antibiotic? Or Those kind of things I think are important for us to be good stewards of these very important resource, which are antibiotics.
1: So, yeah, I hear hear you on the idea of stewardship and it kind of makes me think of, and maybe it's a, the wrong way to look at it, but like this abundance or scarcity kind of idea or thought, one frame of reference, like if it's an abundance piece, so like, hey, we can use these. And you know we'll do research we'll develop things that will always stay a step ahead so there's not this massive catastrophic situation like the one that this economist in the UK kind of projects with massive loss of life lots of costs and i think the question for me and maybe others is okay so we talk about stewardship who then decides how and when these things are administered that's a lot of authority and a lot of power that dictates a lot of different things i'm thinking of it whether it's within veterinary medicine or within human health dictating ways to to do things. Yeah, if there's a standard operating procedure that's out there, great. But then like is there someone that at the end of the day or a body that's gonna say, this is how we do things? And then what is their, I guess, reference point for making those recommendations and how are they thinking about that and, and coming to the table? And I think that's I guess the question I hear the stewardship, but then I'm like, well how do they derive those answers and what makes them the best person to make that decision? Because yeah, you you talked about it earlier. I think inherently all humans are going to be selfish. So they're going to want what benefits them right away. And so I think that also plays into consideration when you think about who makes these decisions, right? How are they going to all of a sudden step back and not be selfish in that, that spot as well?
2: You ask a very good question. So let me talk about veterinary health, right? And sometimes animal health could be divided into two broad categories, let's say, the small animal side and the animal agriculture side, right? In animal agriculture in the U.S., let me talk specifically about the U.S., there are regulatory bodies that regulate FDA and USDA, regulate what antibiotics could be given in these food animals, you know, animals that are going to be destined to Food. There are very strict controls about when and how those antibiotics could be given, and for example, uh, there are recent regulations for about eight, ten years ago that prohibit the use of antibiotics as growth promotion in food animal. Um, so there are entities that regulate that, and the veterinarian, as a good steward needs to have a veterinary-client relationship and have good records of when and how those antibiotics, if they need it, they are given to those food animals. Now, on the companion animal side, which includes dogs, cats, pets, and horses, in the United States, there's basically no regulation. There's not yet an entity that will regulate what antibiotics could be given. So really being a good steward of the antibiotics and have stewardship programs within your practice or your hospital depends on you and your team, which it makes it challenging in a sense. But there are a lot of universities, large practices, putting in place stewardship programs. Education is a very important part of stewardship. And you go to conferences now and you start seeing that antibiotic resistance, stewardship, all these topics, you know, they are kind of hot topics, right? So it's great that we are starting to educate our veterinarians, young and old, about the importance of antimicrobial use and resistance and how we can be better stewards of antibiotics and how we can implement some of these stewardship programs in our practice. It could be something very complex, very comprehensive or something you can start small, but at least educate yourself as a veterinarian. It's a key point and a key way to start because regulation is coming. And I think at some point in the United States, we are going to be mandated what kind of antibiotics we could potentially use in small animals. And the important part of this and the lesson that we should learn from animal agriculture is that as small animal veterinarians or equine veterinarians, we need to be sitting at the table and collaborating with the regulatory agencies so they can understand how we can put in place some regulations that might have minimal impact on patient care, because we don't want to have blanket regulations that then we would lose access to certain important drugs that we need to use in certain cases to care for our patients. So as you can see, I mean, you ask a very good question, and people that are really thinking about this right now. And I, and I think, like I say, this is something that we should not point fingers but collaborate. So by, I had the great pleasure or the opportunity to be on both sides of the table in the animal agriculture side and now as a practitioner in small animal practice, seeing both sides. And I participate in different talks and organizations that they're really looking how to cross collaborate and how we can learn from
1: each other. If you can improve the health of an animal, you do it, right? Of course, that's what makes veterinarians special. You're mission-driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable, online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They wanna help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they've prioritized having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax, grow and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. I think about the point that you made about that veterinarians need to be at the table and be consulted as you go through the process to develop it, I think is super important because historically, and this is probably a little bit of my bias that will show through, is the question I wrote down as I was taking notes is like, is government regulation good? And it's not a blanket answer that it's always bad or it's always good, but I kind of default to more regulation typically is not always a great solution. But that being said, having some... I think, guides and having the ability for the person that is actually the one that understands the problem, but also the person that's going to be doing the work, as long as they're coming together, which is what you're saying and what you're kind of articulating, that to me has the opportunity to be a better system and a better process if there is going to be regulation that's put in place. What seems to happen a lot of times is regulation and these rule sets get Created in the person that actually is there on the front line that would know best, their inputs completely ignored. It's almost similar to, you know, let's say I'm a veterinary practice owner and I decide I'm going to do something completely different in our practice and I don't consult the CSR at the front and it's going to directly impact them. It's like you got to go talk to them because they're going to know, hey, this is why that won't work or hey, did you think about this? And so I agree with you that there needs to be that kind of consultation. My hope is it happens and it's done well and it's based on what information is out there that's vetted and researched in a way that's not pushing any sort of agenda that benefits a certain subset, because that typically to me seems to be what happens with government regulation. But again, that's not always within vet med. This is just, I'm saying more broadly, it seems to happen that way. So- You got any thoughts on that? Let's just be kind of ranting for a little bit.
2: Well, no, no, you're right. I mean, you're always going to make some people mad, right, when you implement regulations. But I think the important thing is to have a sector or the sector where the regulations are going to be implemented sitting at the table and having their voice being heard and trying to come to... You're not going to always have a hundred percent, but if you can have an understanding of the regulatory agencies and how we can better do these, because sometimes you need a little bit of a whip to be able to change behavior in people. In Europe, there's a lot more stringent regulation about what antibiotics can be used and cannot be used, and under what circumstances can be used in companion animals. So the European veterinarians. They don't have free access to whatever antibiotic you want to prescribe. So you have to work with what you have. Not that you cannot access to a higher tier antibiotic, but if you do, you have to have supporting evidence that that's the antibiotic that you need because of these, this and that. Okay. You cannot prescribe a high tier antibiotic from the get go.
1: So I have a handful of questions just from listeners to the show and before I kind of transition there, is there anything else that you feel like from a kind of high level overview of where things are, kind of the position and likely some of the actions that needed to be taken, any additional color on that topic? I think when you talk
2: about the actions that need to be taken, we know that really This concept of stewardship that could really feel very um, sort of vague and people sometimes do not understand what is it. But... But really, I think veterinarians could learn a lot from the human health about how to implement these hospital clinic stewardship programs and basically have an important part of stewardship has is like in any business, right? You have to have leadership commitment, right? You have to have the owners of the practice or the, the head of the practice or the chief medical officer or whoever is on the top. It has to be committed to implement stewardship. And sort of lead by example. And really, by implementing some of these measures, starting it starting small and then carry on and grow from there is key. And I think one of the important things about that is how we can educate ourselves as veterinarians about things that we can do different, you know, better improve the way we diagnose follow some of the guidelines that, you know, there are not as many as in human medicine, but we do have some guidelines out there that will help us decide in certain diseases, how we can best uh, utilize antibiotics. So I think those things are key and it is an important aspect by which we could start a stewardship
1: program in in our clinics. One question that actually came in from a a listener I want to kind of start with, and I don't know if I'll get to all of them, because I think some of them we've kind of touched in a roundabout way. But one that I thought was really interesting was posed to me was the ethics of using human antibiotics on resistant infections when there is no veterinarian approved drug either available. And this puts back orders or culture says all vet med drug resistance. Thoughts on that of kind of taking or borrowing to address an issue?
2: Yeah, I think what this question is referring to is, you know, if you look at the uh, World Health Organization, right, it has sort of group antibiotics in highest priority, high priority, or highly important or important. So there are different tiers. And sometimes, and I think, I don't think it's unethical if you have a patient, a dog or a cat that is sick enough that you really need to use highest priority of an antibiotic to save its life. You can use it, right? Um, if you perform all the right diagnostics, you potentially, I think your question talks about potentially having a culture and sensitivity. So basically you send the, the, the sample of that bacteria to the lab, they culture it, they grew it, they expose it to different antibiotics in the, in the lab. And he says, well, the only way you can kill these bacteria is by using a highest priority antibiotic. The, that's fine if you, if you approach that in that sense. And you sometimes uh, even um, veterinary schools, they have an infection prevention specialist that will speak with the clinician and go through the data and really authorize the use of that particular antibiotic, right? It's not like the practitioner can prescribe it the first day. Okay. Now, unethically or not being good stewards is to use a highest priority antibiotic or a high tier antibiotic for a cat that is coming with, an abscess or an upper respiratory infection, right? You shouldn't use any antibiotics for an upper respiratory infection anyway, because it's viral most of the times. So one of those highest priorities of antibiotics is what we call a third generation cephalosporin, which I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, The commercial name, but I don't want to name names, but there is a very commonly used and overused third-generation cephalosporin in small animal practice. That is the highest priority antibiotic. So it should not be used in that manner. So I think that is not being good stewards when you just use it because You think that it is convenient to use it and you just give a shot and the cat goes home and you don't see him again. I think there are alternatives. You should start with lower tier of antibiotics and that is part of
1: educating yourself and being good stewards. So one of the questions was kind of, it was a fairly multi-level question, but it kind of was talking about how clients will push hard for certain things because maybe they don't want to keep coming back. And I think that's the temptation that you just highlighted, right? Don't jump to the thing that you know is maybe the strongest medication. They'll try other things before it. But in reality, I think the question then is, Do does a patient come and say, well, hey, Dr. Isaiah, you're just trying to get appointment fees out of me all the time and you won't actually give me something to fix this. You just are trying to charge me too much. Like how would you, how do you frame? that conversation? Or what would you encourage a veterinarian to combat that? Because I feel like that's a real world issue. Maybe it's just me not being in clinical practice, but I'm just looking at it as as someone that would come and and see this person, I might feel that way. Yeah,
2: well, and, and think about it, you know, to extrapolate that to human medicine, you know, a lot of people go to the pediatrician with a kid with a stuffy nose, And they put pressure on the pediatrician to give antibiotics. And most of the time, you don't need to do antibiotics. You know, yeah, it will, you know, it's a viral infection and it will take time, some some stuff and you just get better. But that is a problem that I see on being a small animal practitioner, that you have people that just come to the practice expecting because some other veterinarian gave him a shot. Oh, dog, the other vet gave him a shot and he got better. Well, it got better, but it's going to get better anyway. So was it the shot or was it that it got better? So that is part of the education. And it's not only educating veterinarians and the veterinary care team, which is also a very important part, because imagine that if you, you know, the face of your veterinary clinics is the the receptionist or the veterinary technician is the first person that would encounter that client. And if they say, oh yeah, the dog will give him an antibiotic and it will be fine. Then you have a bigger barrier to clear and try to educate that client if one of your teams already told him that he was going to get an antibiotic. So educating the veterinary care team about antibiotics is key. And also educating the clients. When I have a client that is coming and say, well, I need an antibiotic, I spend five minutes and I, I tell them, Well, I don't think you need an antibiotic for your cat because it has the sniffles. The lungs sound clear. It doesn't have a fever. It doesn't look sick. It is likely a viral infection. So we're going to wait and see what happens. What can you do? You know, A lot of times you have to give the owner something to do so they feel like they are doing something while they wait and they watch that animal. So what do you do? Do some steam therapy. Turn the shower on to the bathroom, build up steam, let it steam so it breaks up the nasal secretions. If it doesn't eat because it can't smell, warm up the food. Give him some over the counter supplements, which is not going to hurt. Okay. It might do better, but it might help, but it might, it's likely not going to hurt. So if you give him something to do that they'll feel that they're working towards that animal to get better, then during that watchful period, they're going to be occupied and thinking that they're doing something. And then the other important thing is be very clear. So it could turn into a pneumonia. So watch for these, 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 and that. If that happens, bring it back because we might need an antibiotic. In my experience, if you educate that client like that, we don't need an to our appointment you can in five minutes tell them that and they I think the owners say oh I didn't know that antibiotics could cause issues in the cat or that the antimicrobial resistance is a problem I thought that that was only a people thing and when you talk to them like that most of them if not all of them at least in my practice they understand and say okay thanks doc. okay well and then you don't see them 99% of them, you don't see them again. Now, you know, sometimes you do have to use antibiotics, which is fine.
1: Yeah, I noticed, it's it's interesting that you bring up cats a couple times there, because I noticed a couple different questions that brought up our feline friends from that standpoint with making it difficult to medicate. Cats have a lot of UTIs. Like, are there, going back to like the three things you talked about, the evolution, the environment, and social, is it something where... Having the conversation on if we change the environment around this animal, some of these things can be mitigated before they come in to seeing, you know, me, Dr. Isaiah, right, where I need to go and address these things. Is that part of the problem here too? Is like, how can we mitigate it and do th- some things through diet, through the environment, through these other things? Does that work as well? I, mean, I think about it from a human health perspective, like, hey, if you have XYZ issues, maybe you don't need another pill. Maybe you need to change the way your lifestyle is.
2: Well, yeah, that's a good point, because, you know, I don't care for people to come and see Dr. Acerk. It's fine to come to the vet and see and have a conversation, right? I think it's wrong to overuse antibiotics. And you mentioned UTIs in cats, right? And yeah, sure, there's a lot of times that you see cats that come in because they pee outside the litter box. Or they have no clinical signs of a an UTI. And you do the workup, they don't have any clinical signs of the UTI. And we know that cats develop these cystitis that is inflammation of the bladder. uh, And one of the contributing factors of these could be stress. So cats that are stressed at home or there has been some changes or, you know, the owner moved or there's a new baby or there's a crazy dog in the house. Those things could cause issues with the urinary bladder and they don't need an antibiotic. Sometimes they need changing the environment a little bit, like you say. A lot of times you prescribe these, you know, pheromones that have some soothing effects. A lot of times we prescribe some anti-inflammatories and they do fine. They do fine. They don't need a, a third generation cephalosporin injection on every cat that comes in. Now, if you have a cat that I saw one last week that basically the urine looked like pus, yeah, you might need to give an antibiotic. But another thing is that is coming now is the duration of the use of the antibiotics. You know, there is a lot of dogma out there that is say you need to treat it for two weeks. You need to treat it for a week after the clinical science improved. And we are learning that all those things really are based on something that somebody said back in the 70s that it got kind of carry on. And there is really no proof. So now we're starting to see in humans and in animals that shorter is better. So shorter duration of antibiotics for certain diseases is better. So you don't need to treat an UTI for two weeks most of the times. Sometimes with shorter duration is better. So the other things that we are learning as we go, and we can take things from human medicine and implement it in veterinary medicine as well.
1: I know I shared a couple of the other questions and things that were posed to me in advance. Was there any of the other questions? Because I know some of them kind of built on each other. Was there anything that you wanted to pull out of any of those other ones that you feel like would be good to kind of break down or or share a little bit?
2: Well, the one that I was, I think the one, the nicest question or the the interesting question is what we discuss right now, you know, with the clients or the pet owners, because they are so, it's like part of the family and they do want the best. And I think that's, that's the other thing. You know, they do want the best. So when you're explaining what are the downsides of prescribing an antibiotic, they do want the best and they understand. So I think if we bring the pet owner as part of our stewardship program, it's a very easy way to start and you can have significant impact on the way you practice and you prescribe antibiotics. And then you can build your stewardship program from there.
1: So I guess as we wrap up, is there anything that I haven't asked about that I should or any areas around, whether it's antibiotics, the concept of stewardship, kind of actions that veterinarians should take? I mean, is there anything, if I'm a practice owner today, I'm hearing this message, I mean, is there things that I need to be doing in my kind of local organized veterinary medicine to, to bring these conversations up? Is there an action to take? And what would you encourage them to do? Well, I
2: think when you think about AMR on antimicrobial resistance and use, some Dr. Scott Weiss, who is a, you know kind of a guru in, in infectious diseases and AMR said, really the barriers to addressing these problems are not the bacteria or the antibiotics, but it's human behavior. So how can we change this behavior? How we can think about Need to change this behavior because this will have impact in future generations. It might not have a significant impact in the day-to-day way that we practice veterinary medicine today, but in the near future will, and we are going to continue to cause issues. So, how we can do better to serve those clients? Use better diagnostics. Use alternative to antibiotics. Think before we prescribe. All those things are key for us to continue to be good stewards of antibiotics and be able to continue to have antibiotics that we can use when patients need it.
1: So I think that is critical. So I love it. I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up. For those that want to connect with you, I know we talked about it back in episode 164, but for those that maybe haven't listened or are new to hearing you and what you're sharing where would you encourage them to reach out how would they connect yeah well i'm on linkedin a
2: lot i like to uh, you know use linkedin as a platform a lot and then um, you know i have my my website dvm1health.com It's yeah, so they can re- reach through there but most of the time through linkedin and i'm happy to engage and continue the conversation. And this is a learning process. And I always learning from people and I always take opportunities to try to be a voice out there about this, what I think is a critical problem. And like you say, at the beginning, I'm I'm really passionate about this problem because it kind of breaches disciplines and really thinks about, you know, human behavior, the economics, the science. So it's a very, very complex problem. That's what I really like and enjoy talking about this stuff.
1: I love it. Thank you for the time. It's great to, to be able to connect and chat today and yeah, we'll do it again and, and possibly we'll have a guest again or maybe it'll be a solo episode, but appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing.
2: Oh, thanks thanks for the opportunity, S.A.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. However. You are intelligent enough to make decisions for yourself. So I do encourage you to dig in, learn for yourself and not just outsource every decision that you make. You should talk to your professional team if you have one before implementing anything that I talk about, but also make sure they know what they're talking about. Push them, question them. That's healthy. That's okay. Oh yeah. And you should probably own and learn a little bit about that Bitcoin thing. The biggest compliment you can give to me is to share the show with a friend or the podcast if there's another episode that you really like. That helps folks find it. That helps it grow. Um, reviews are critical. The Apple Podcast is the platform that's predominantly used for how people find the show. So, if you have three minutes, love the show, please head over, give us five stars if you believe that's what we earned. That would help more people find the show. Also, if you're new, go to YouTube. It's a channel, uh, putting up all the videos there as well. Sometimes it's going to be more interactive, other times it's just going to be the conversation. So, vainly, I want to get 100 subscribers so I get the vanity URL. That's the goal. We're on our way, but not quite there yet. For all of today's links, information, head over to com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss any episodes in the future. And finally, if you'd like more information, insights, or have the ability to, for your voice to be heard, join the Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to com. Scroll to the bottom, about your host, click on the Facebook icon. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. All right, so there are a lot of great job postings that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, eight to five, no on or emergencies. It's an appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021, bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes in the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSAL is the pay structure Far too many benefits for me to list. Email Vet 251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving, growing small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border. Full-time ideal. Part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients, and clients in outdoor woman's paradise while uh, being able to practice high-quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to t- find the right person and is happy to negotiate chat through and find the right fit if you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching reach out to newport veterinary hospital you can email newport at gmail.com north central indiana looking for an oasis in the chaos who isn't right come join the amazing team at fulton county veterinary clinic they strive to foster a fun fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care they utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork which is great lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you full-time or part-time available small animal and exotics are both seen there so no er no on call no weekends competitive salary with sign-on bonus offered and far too many benefits to list go to fulton county veterinary clinic so type that in and you'll find the job posting there Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital, Personable, Small Animal Veterinarian One and for Well Established Current Five Doctor Mixed Animal Practice in Northern New York, which is an outdoors persons paradise. Again, two of those. So if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs, six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, a hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on call, uh, 24 hour ER, less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95,000. It can be straight salary, pro sal considered. Want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to watertownpetcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know. And we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon.